Welcome back to Understanding VC. I am your host Rahul. Today my guest is Hian Go. Hian is a co-founder and managing partner at Open Space Ventures, a multi-stage VC fund investing in B2B and B2C startups in Southeast Asia. At Open Space, Hian focuses on new growth strategies and sits on the boards of portfolio companies like Kumu, Love Bonito, Freshcat and also led the first institutional fundraising round in Gojek. Prior to Open Space, he founded and built Asian Food Channel, a 24-hour pay TV channel which was sold to US media giant Scripps Interactive in 2013. Now let's talk to him. Hi Hian, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi Rahul, thanks for having me. <laughs> let's start with your background. So, like where did you grow up? Well, my background is relatively straightforward in some ways i don't have one of those dramatic stories about you know leaving a country migrating or having a loss of a parent or something like that and that in itself is also an interesting perspective to start off with because i think most people would say i i, I have a very balanced and normal background i grew up in singapore i'm singaporean very decidedly middle class you know grew up up north in thompson had a nice uh, mom and dad had a nice small sort of semi detached house studied had two older sisters youngest of the of the three and life was relatively calm but one thing that is interesting about my personality is that I'm I'm a very inquisitive human being I actually don't know why that is but it just I just realized I am so when you have a background like that and when you have I guess a very nurturing background it allows your creativity and your inquisitiveness to blossom my dad never stopped it in fact he encouraged it and i always remember when i was young you know i grew up at a time when there was no internet so we had the encyclopedia so i would read the encyclopedia and if there yeah. was a radio or something like that uh, i would open it up and try and look at, at what's behind so that's kind of like my background i guess i was an engineer from day one and inquisitive human being from day one yeah i've uh, read that you you studied in england yes so how did that happen Yeah. So my dad worked for Shell, right? So that was a in Singapore back in the 80s. You know, Shell and a lot of those oil companies were the big companies that you wanted to work for. There was no Google, there was no Facebook, and they paid well, and there was a big job, right? Extracting oil and the distribution of chemicals was a huge business and Singapore had built a lot of its economic foundation from oil companies. and all companies at th- at those time were was very very good to their employees now my dad however was not an oil engineer or chemical engineer he was actually a computer programmer i famously think that he's one of the first three computer programmers in singapore he sat for an exam in the old days <laughs> that was how you became a computer engineer uh, you sat for exam uh, you did well in math and then his first job actually wasn't even with shell he was with uh, the public works department doing the 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 billing systems using punch cards so it was quite an interesting background and i had computers from a very young age he would bring them back from the office and he let me play with them but as he became more senior shell kind of like ran out of jobs for him in singapore and so they said why don't we go to london and we'll make you work on it projects on a global scale and he asked me he said do you want to come with me or do you want to stay in singapore and go to a junior college and I opted to do the adventure. So Shell essentially paid for a very expensive public school education. You know, I went to Dulwich College, fully paid. And I think if you're a relatively bright kid from Singapore and you study hard, uh, 
you get the benefits of a private education. I think one of the interesting things which I always feel very strongly about is that uh, you should mix both creativity as well as a structured environment. And the Singapore education system was very structured. But, you know, Dulwich College was much more about confidence, about leadership. And I got into Oxford. I did a law degree there. And I guess that was my first meander away from IT and computers. But I guess in some ways, I've, I've, I've decided to come back. So I spent uh, my formative years, call it from 16 onwards in London. I spent almost 10 years there. I did a law degree in one of the best universities. And I started you know, my career as a banker. And I never thought I'd become a venture capitalist or really be fully, fully absorbed into the tech world at that point of time. But I think as fate would have it, I, I started to kind of push back into this direction. So then why start a business? Like you were an investment banker. Yeah. What made you decide to start a, that, that to like a, a food channel? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess I was kind of hiding from my, my inner sort of sense of wanting to be an entrepreneur. Now, now that I look back, and I'm in my 40s now, I kind of conclude retroactively, which is sometimes a bit of a dangerous thing, that I guess I always was an entrepreneur. And there were telltale signs. There were telltale signs that I was always like this from day one. Like I tried to import and export computers from my roommate who's Israeli. Even when I was at Oxford, like the two of us hashed up a scheme to get laptop computers. We figured out that, you know, Israel had more expensive laptop computers. So in my summer break, I tried to do that. It didn't go anywhere. But there was always this tension where I felt like I wanted to do the things that I wanted to do and not necessarily, you know, work within a structured environment. Now, that's actually why I didn't become a lawyer. Like being an investment banker was the first step in me trying to escape from a structured environment. And investment banking was actually an amazing place because essentially what you do is you sell businesses or the ideas of businesses. You sell stock of companies promising that these companies will become more valuable. So as an investment banker, you're always trying to tell the story about how either by buying a company or merging a company or selling a stock that that company would be more valuable and so therefore you should invest in it. So that was how I ended up sort of knowing that I'm an entrepreneur. But in many ways, I didn't have the pathway at that point of time to be an entrepreneur. What I mean by that is that, you know, as a venture capitalist, we see people with so many different backgrounds, right? We see people who became entrepreneurs because they just, you know, they had no choice. They just, they, they, nobody wanted to hire them. So they started their own company. That's a very classic, right? It's a very classic way of like, you know, call it all entrepreneurs, not just technology entrepreneurs. But then there are folks like technology entrepreneurs where they choose starting a company in a very structured fashion with venture capital as a way of either doing what they want or doing something they're passionate about or just plain making money. So I think that, to me, in some ways, is the energy I've always had. Uh, I've always felt the need to push forward in life. And uh, I think investment banking did that. But one day I just decided, hey, you know what? I think being an entrepreneur would probably be a better idea. Yeah. So I've heard you mention this, entrepreneurs as underdogs. So I'm very curious, like, why do you say entrepreneurs are underdogs? And are all entrepreneurs underdogs, in your opinion? Well, you have to think about what an underdog means, right? Rahul, have you ever thought what an underdog means? I mean, what comes to my <laughs> mind is always David versus Goliath. Yeah. So, but like like you said, like if you choose to start and if you have the right kind of experience and the resources, then are you really an underdog? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's a very interesting thing. 
Yeah, I mean, being an underdog just to me means that you're taking on a, a big task with very little resources. I mean, what you're alluding to is your skill set, your capabilities, and so on and so forth. So maybe you're right. A lot of people, and I always believe that, that you always stand on the shoulders of giants, right? There's always somebody in life, myself definitely so, and I've got quite a few mentors would help you prep in your life, right? Your mother would have been your first mentor. But when you end up deciding, and let's define entrepreneurship in a very structured fashion, when you end up deciding that I'm going to start a company and do something, certainly from our lens as venture capitalists, you're doing something to disrupt. And what does it mean by disrupt? It's either one of two things. Either you find a better way of doing something or you do something that's never been done before, right? So the classic example is Elon Musk when it comes to SpaceX, right? Everyone knows how to make rockets. Governments make rockets. He says, I'm going to make rockets and I'm going to make it at a tenth or a hundredth of a cost, whatever it is, right? And that's because he has sense from first principles why he thinks he can do it and thinks it better and so on and so forth. Now, when you come up with that idea, you have these two tensions. One is that if you just put the logic in a neutral space, right? When you say, when Elon says, I think we need to have a reusable rocket, et cetera, et cetera. It does make sense. But why you're an underdog is because as an entrepreneur, I almost guarantee you 100% of the time that there are other ways of doing things which are way more established. And a lot of people have bet on those ideas. So a lot of people have said, no, this is the way we're going to do something. We've done it for 20 years, 30 years. And what you're proposing either is too crazy or too risky, but really most of the time, it's because if it actually succeeds, it's going to make the people who were doing it previously look kind of silly. And that's the funny thing I realized about human behavior. A lot of problems is just about the ego, right? The, the, an ego in a very you know, psychological way. Some of the best entrepreneurs who are underdogs, I see, have the ability not only to sell that idea, which is, I think, 50% of the problem, but to make the people who are thinking about the alternative way or the traditional way of doing things feel comfortable that they're not silly and that they get onto the way you are thinking. So the idea of bringing buy-in, of convincing people to come along with you, that's actually, I think, the key thing about being an underdog. You can never do anything by yourself. So you really have to like propose your new radical way of doing things. And then you've got to find a way of convincing either people who've never heard of it to believe in you or people who have thought I'm doing it the other way to discard the old way of thinking and do it the new way. You look at what we're trying to do now in the world now. You've got crypto, right? You've got one of the crazy things, even the vaccines, mRNA vaccines. That's a textbook example of a moonshot, which until today, a lot of people have a lot of debate because I think the key essence of an underdog is not necessarily that the idea is new or disruptive. It's the fact that you need to get people alongside your idea. Yeah, that's true. I think that uh, in that sense, uh, every entrepreneur is an underdog. So is there a great underdog story that you can share with me? Sure, sure. So specifically, some of the more recent examples of phenomenal underdogs, which you know I've come across my portfolio, one really great example would be Kumu, right? And Kumu for your listeners, 
I think is one of the craziest stories I've ever heard in my entire life. I met Kumu probably around 2017, and Kumu is a live streaming app. So if you fire up the app Kumu on your mobile phone, for the Filipino community, you have millions of people now all together interacting, listening to people play music, tell stories, even go to church, self-improvement, or just plain entertainment. And it is one of the fastest growing forms of media in the world. But in 2017, when I met them, the three founders, specifically, they were very young, call it three concert promoters. And actually, the fourth guy was like a radio DJ. And they walked into my office and their traction was unbelievable, at least certainly for that stage. And I looked at them and I didn't understand how they managed to do that. Now, here's where the ego comes involved, because, you know, before I did venture capital, I was running Asian Food Channel, and I disrupted free-to-air by rolling out cable TV channel, and uh, I generated X amount of revenues. But these guys had already, at this stage, had well exceeded their financial metrics, well exceeded their, their uh, viewership metrics than when I was doing Asian Food Channel. So you can imagine, Rahul, the kind of level of discomfort I had. Like, I, I think I was smart, but these three young guys have outdone me. Outdone me from day one. Yeah. Oh my God. So I sat them down. And I must admit, I was very cynical. So I was like, So, how'd you guys do that? And uh, it turns out that uh, it was simply because the mobile phone was very, very well distributed. 4G networks in the Philippines were very, very well distributed. And we have this new platform. But more importantly, they had a combination of both the ability to read what the Filipino audience wanted. And the technology, a lot of it came from Agora in China, to scale it up. And by golly, Rahul, they have definitely outdone me. I look back and I feel sort of, I wish I, I, I sort of started a company now because the scale that they managed to get, without permission, by the way, they didn't have to ask people for permission to build their broadcast network. It's kind of like pirate radio back in the 80s. Whereas for me, I have to ask for permission when I was running Asian Food Channel. I had to do deals with cable companies to actually get distribution. They didn't. They put their app out there. And because it was popular, it grew. It was the most unbelievable underdog story. And I sat them down and I said, you are up against some of the most, like, biggest companies, like ABS, CBN, GMA, just in the Philippines alone, and many other media forms around the world. That, to me, was an interesting underdog story. What made me invest with them was simply that they had, like what I said, the ability to sell the idea and get other people on board. So they certainly got me on board. It was just such pleasant and passionate people with a devoid of any sort of arrogance and absolute humility. Whereas I was like going at them, going like, you should do this, do that, because I was testing them. And then finally I said, you should talk to XYZ Broadcaster in the Philippines to see whether you can work with them. Two weeks later, they sent me an email where we've got a partnership with them. And that's when I realized nice. those guys who are, you know, underdogs, if we are to assume, Rahul, that all entrepreneurs are underdogs, those were the ones that I thought were going to be successful because there are many people, you always start as an underdog, who are not successful because they just can't get people on side. They're remarkable and they continue with that energy to convert, like literally convert people like a religious conversion onto their platform. I was in Dubai and I did a little funny test where I just asked people, I said, you know, Filipino people who were working there, like, have you heard of Kumu? And the passion they had, they go, oh my God, Kumu, yes, we love that. 
it's just an amazing story. And today, I don't think they are really an underdog. They're very mainstream now. They're probably seeing a top dog. And actually, the next thing that you have to do as a venture capitalist is help people transition from the underdog mentality to one where you are the dominant player. That's very hard because, you know, you look at, say, for example, Uber, right? And the challenges that Travis had as the CEO of Uber. And then ultimately, at the end of the day, he was transitioned to Dara. People forget that a person like Dara is not the right energy to start a disruptive company like Uber, specifically Uber. Because Travis had to break taxi monopolies run by very, very, you know, influential people like the taxi medallion in New York and so on and so forth. So how do you transition a company from an underdog company to a dominant player? That actually is one of the most difficult things in venture capital. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Uber has Travis's personality all over it. The way it grew, uh, it's it's kind of like that his arrogance. It's yeah. I feel you need that. But but, but, yeah. but to your point, what happens when you are now the top dog and then everyone goes like, oh, God, you guys are so arrogant. <laughs> you have to transition to different things, you know, stewardship of the yeah. industry, being much more about the community. That's actually a very difficult transition because the entrepreneur, you know, they're hard charging and they don't believe that they're actually now the dominant player and they had to do things in yeah. a completely different way. Yeah. Yeah, going back to building media businesses, it has certainly got a lot cheaper and easier to build any sort of startups, right? Yes. Like from your time. I mean, carry on, yes. That's the answer is both yes and no, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so then, uh, I mean, then that comes with the challenges because then it's like, if anybody, a lot more people can start, then how do you, how do you stand out? (laughs) So I would like to discuss like starting a media company specifically. Let's take your podcast, Unreasonable Podcast as an example. So if you were to do this full time, like how would you approach it? (laughs) So you're right, Rahul. It's easy and it's cheap to start a podcast. Everyone can start a podcast. I started a podcast. You started a podcast. And as as we speak, we're using Google Chrome and Apple AirPods to do it. And why I kind of disagree about why it's cheap is because you have to do a lot of marketing. Now the cost of the so-called competition for the voice, the noise, how do you rise above the noise, Rahul, is what you're saying, right? That's expensive because you need to go and figure it out. You need to get celebrities, for example, to be on your podcast. So the price of that, it becomes you know, very much in a different bucket in your accounting thing, but it's still it's still expensive. So let's give an example, you know, the unreasonable podcast, right? So I'll tell you the story of the unreasonable podcast, which is that I'm starting to see a lot of really, really great, you know, podcasts describing venture capital. But what we wanted to do was to humanize the voice. You know, I used to be an entrepreneur, I did it for 10 years. And I always saw when I was an entrepreneur, venture capitalists were sort of this monolithic creature descended from the gods of capital to come and judge you and your business plans and anoint you to become, you know, Travis or Mark or whomever, right? And a lot of people uh, kind of ran with that idea, right? I think the ultimate expression of that idea is Shark Tank, right? Three omniscient people, you know, venture capitalists, successful venture capitalists, 
who either tell you your idea is great or because it's television, it's completely shit and terrible and you're going to fail. It's mixed with compulsive viewing. And I'll tell you this, a lot of people ask me, do you want to be on Shark Tank or do you want to be on this sort of judging show? A lot of people have asked me that. And I've always categorically said no. And they all, when I say that, people get very shocked. In fact, I had one broadcaster say, why? You'd be so good on it. And I go like, I do not want to be put on a pedestal. You make a show. And I say this today. If like Netflix came to me and said, I'm going to make a show about three venture capitalists or four venture capitalists. And we're going to follow the actual trials and tribulations of being a venture capitalist, raising capital, trying to convince people to take your money because that's an amazing company. Or you can have, after having invested in company, having you know, a lot of uh, difficulties and having to work through that. That story, that very human experience is what I'm chasing with the Unreasonable podcast. At the end of the day, I think if you wanted to hear who Hien or Michael or Vishal really are as human beings without the Unreasonable podcast, I, I find there's very few uh, places to actually listen to who we are as human beings. And that's why I didn't necessarily do an open space podcast. Now, don't get me wrong. We might end up doing an open space podcast, but it's just a different format. And we took inspiration from, you know, I think the three guys in America, in Chamath and, and David yeah, Sachs, all and, in. you know, the All In podcast. It's different, though. I think the All In podcast is sort of them really trying to disrupt or talk or say things really on their minds. I feel like the Unreasonable podcast is maybe slightly more personal and intimate. It didn't end up like that. But as the three of us, Michael, Vishal, and myself, started doing this podcast, it turns out we talk a lot about very you know intimate things about our personal experience, as opposed to, you know, here's my prediction of where cryptocurrency will go in the next 10 years because I'm really, really smart in this thing, or I know people are very smart. And I think that's when the comparison between the All In podcast and the Unreasonable podcast diverges. But essentially, the format's the same. Like three people or four people who know each other very well talk about things, and it allows the viewer to hopefully get a, a better understanding of venture capital and humanizes venture capitalists, and more importantly, sort of humanizes us. You know, people, I've, I've had a lot of people come and go, oh my God, yeah, and you're the general partner of Open Space, blah, blah. And they make such preconceptions about who you are. Or people go, oh my gosh, the guy's a little bit edgy or whatever. And I just want to put myself out there with two good friends of mine and let the viewers judge who we are as human beings. So therefore, yeah. Rahul, there is actually no ambition for this thing to be a million viewers. I don't need a million viewers for Unreasonable Podcast. I want like a 500 viewers or 500 listeners. Sorry, I always call it viewers because I'm a TV guy. 500 listeners. But those are the 500 that count. Those are the 500 that I would interact with or of those 500 could be potential investors or business partners, and most importantly, entrepreneurs who just, you know, I always advocate before you take money, try and do your due diligence, you know, like try and really understand who you're taking that money from and their perspective, their strengths, their weaknesses. This is just one way of us putting ourselves out there so that we can be judged for the people who are interested in, you know, learning more about us. Yeah. Based on the feedback from people, so how do you? Have you gone through some iterations yeah. of the format? Or? Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. So, oh my gosh, there's like two camps. Like, it's so hard, right? So, 
one cat says, so I'll start again, right? So what the format is, we spend about 10 minutes yakking on about what we did, very personal life things. And then we try and attempt to dive into a subject, like attempt. And then most of the time is really to try and crack jokes and rib at each other. And once in a while, there's a couple of insightful thoughts. And then we finish off by trying to, you know, shout out on some current affair, things like that. So one of the interesting things is people go like, oh, I like your content a lot. I like your deep insights and all that bantering. Why you guys do that? It's so boring. And then I've got other people, you know, including my wife and some people who are not part of the venture capital. She goes, oh, I like the banter. The banter is really interesting. Even when we talk about like, you know, Web3 and that kind of stuff, I tune out. So then people go like, who's your audience? Like, who are you guys marketing to? And I just think like, you know, to be honest, and this could be a really truly failed experiment. We're straddling two different audiences, right? We've got people who are very, I don't know, technically focused, want to hear the insights, and other people just know who we are. I think it'll morph to about more about who we are and less of the insights. But then if we kind of just keep on talking about ourselves, it doesn't work. So the next episode that hasn't been published, we're starting to get founders on. We just had our first guest founder, and that's interesting. So I think we're gonna go much more personable and along the way the insights or the information will come out. So yeah, that's that's uh, that's the feedback. And uh, I don't really listen to that much to the feedback per se, if it's about direction, if it's about specific things or things that we said incorrectly, absolutely, or suggestions. But, you know, I, I like to think of this thing as an evolving animal. We certainly, I think, gel better than uh, episode one. And like Rahul, we're only on like episode five. We don't drop one every week. We drop one every two weeks. So it's kind of like an old friend coming visiting you in once in a while. And that's the format where we have right now. And who knows? But the fact that we don't really need like a minute, there's no target to be a minute viewer. That, that becomes very liberating in itself. You, you just do what you yeah. want to do. And I sometimes find that by doing that, things become successful because you're doing it for the right reason. You're doing it for self-actualization. You know, we used to have a saying, in the television world that the camera doesn't lie. I tell you, the microphone doesn't lie either. Right, Rahul? People can really hear who you are. So if you're trying to yeah. fake it, yeah, I mean, you know, good luck to yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's impossible. Yeah. So you guys didn't release a podcast from November 30 uh, till January. So if it's like a serious business, that's like a criminal thing to do, right? Yeah, yeah, you can't yeah. really... <laughs> yeah. Okay. We went... On holiday, right? We have a work balance issue, yeah. right? I took my kids skiing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. So, so sorry, maybe maybe, to, maybe uh, we, we, we dive into that, Rahul. But like, you know, your assumption is that we're trying to do this as a business. Maybe maybe that's the point, right? It's like, well, sorry, let's go back. Yeah. I, I interrupted you there. So that's like suicide in a business, right? Yeah. So uh, let me just ask, you uh, know, very straightforward. So it, for me to grow my podcast, what should I be doing? So should I be like really optimizing on the formats to see something that really clicks and then uh, trying to grow the audience? So what should my approach be? Ah. Well, you have to be laser focused, I think. And you can't be everything to everyone. I think that's the key thing, right? So you yes. have to be laser focused. So um, Paul Graham famously said, you know, don't find a thousand people that like your product. Find a hundred people that love your product. Have you, have you heard of that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So right now, it's, I think, in some ways, right, you're, you're positioning. Shall we analyze your, your, your podcast right now? 
understanding VC, like even if I'm not from Singapore, right, I would totally understand where you're coming from. And it's different. Like the unreasonable podcast, you kind of scratch your head and go like, what the hell is this, right? That positioning yeah. as well. And you've got to have really, really, really great conversationalists, people who are venture capitalists on your podcast. That's why people come to your podcast. But I think a lot of times podcasts, uh, people listen to it also because they listen to the moderator. They listen to you, Rahul, your voice, which is why even before this podcast, we were like negotiating and say like, Rahul, I want you to talk more because I listen to your podcast. You let a lot of us just monologue. Yeah. That's your personality, right? I mean, I, I was like, can, we, yeah. Yeah, can you talk more? Because even you look at Joe Rogan and it doesn't necessarily mean you actually have to say a lot of things, but you got to guide the conversation. The conversation. And the best moderators know how to do that with the least number of words. And then, uh, you know, who you are, Rahul, is critical because I think at the end of the day, people will follow you as, yeah. you know, this is your podcast. Last but not least, I think everything takes time, right? So if you, if I gave you a million dollars and you blasted it on, on, on Facebook, everybody will come and listen and they'll make a conclusion. And if you don't, if you're not ready for that attention, people will conclude, I'm never going to listen to Rahul's podcast again. You've just wasted it. And we always say this to, I always say that to a lot of my entrepreneurs. And so the metric, Rahul, is, uh, is if it's magical. If your podcast is magical, then start marketing it with real cash. Do you want yeah. to know what I mean by magical? <laughs> so I wrote yes, a blog. Yes, I, yeah. yes. So I wrote a pod, I wrote a blog that says, don't don't come to me for marketing money until your product is magical. The magical means by very simply it, it evokes emotion. That's what magic is, right? Can you imagine a sleight of hand and the coin disappears? Sure, your brain knows that the coin disappears, but what's more interesting is like the shock and anticipation, surprise, the humor behind it, that emotional yeah. trigger, because our brains, our human brains are not Spock's brains, you know, engages whichever part of the brain is, like the limbic system, I can't remember, or whatever, right? And it makes, it, it, it anchors that thing. So I always think like if you open up your phone, you press a button and a car appears to pick you up and you didn't hire the car and the car's trustworthy and you don't, and you leave the car. I think one of the great things about Uber was when you leave the car, you walk out like a boss. You didn't even have to pay, right? Do you remember yeah. that feeling? Yeah. Remember that feeling? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. magical. So magic yeah. doesn't have to be super dramatic. Magic can be quite, you know, quite low key as well. But until there's that magic, I say like, you know, don't waste your money because half of the time you just people come and try and go like ah didn't see the trick and then they'll leave so all of my companies i feel like like when when i see something magical i get excited you know nutrition technologies now just to give you a super crazy example is so is yeah. is, is is growing black soldier fly larvae right so that's like alternative protein for fish at a scale i certainly think is world class and when you look at the way they do it I'm like, wow, darn it. We're going to solve the world's like protein problems. That's magical. Okay. Uh, how does that work? Nutrition technology. Oh, yeah. Well, magic is most obvious in the B to C environment. But it doesn't mean that yeah. it cannot not happen into B to B environment. So what I'm saying is that when you have something like nutrition technologies, where you turn up to chicken farmers and fish farmers and say, here, I've got a product that is 55% pure protein, 
It's like protein powder for your fish. Makes your fish grow three times faster or two times faster, whatever the metric is. And it's very cost effective. In fact, it's a cheaper way of you feeding your fish. Think how magical that is to a fish farmer or a chicken farmer. They go, yeah. get out of here. There's no way you did not do that. And go like, yeah, we did that. And the excitement that the person has. Or think of the environmentalists who, when they hear that we, we could use this technology and then stop you know, trawling the, the seas for fish meal. Think how emotionally exciting, like somebody who's been dying to see this technology happen. Think about if someone figured out nuclear fusion. That fusion. to me is yeah. magical. If you figure that, because the promise of Magic. of of limitless energy and energy that's like non destructive to the environment. These are magical things, you know, Rahul. And I think if as a venture capitalist, if you look for the magic, I think <laughs> you'll be right. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. <laughs> now this feels like a conversation between uh, one of your portfolio company founders uh, and a VC. <laughs> so how would you describe your role of like working with a startup? You know, yeah. you, of course you got, provide capital. So beyond that. Yeah. So the first caveat is that uh, Hien's a learning animal, right? So when I first started out as a venture capitalist eight, nine years ago, professionally, right? People that I was angel investing. I feel like I've grown significantly and the way I approach investing and helping companies has grown significantly. So what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, about seven, eight years ago, I never had the opportunity to guide very large projects. I had to wait for these projects to grow, right? So Gojek, where we invested at 300 riders, I love Bonito, the clothing company, when, when we invested had under $10 million of revenues. You know, a lot of things that we started off, even Kumu, when we invested, the scale was of a different scale. In that situation, and I think a lot of people know how to do that part of the business. It's a lot about if you've got the experience guiding the company, helping them with business context, uh, corporate things, ESOPs, uh, being meaningful in terms of uh, guiding people on specific metrics and so on and so forth. The thankful thing about the world now is that a lot of that kind of ideas and principles and the way to do things, they're all available on the internet, YouTube videos and so on and so forth. I think what's rarer and more precious are two things that we have, certainly I think as open space that we've nurtured over the past 10 years. One is that we've really been able to experience alongside a lot of our portfolio companies going from zero to 100 million, to 500 million, to a billion, to 10 billion, and hopefully 25, $30 billion. Those six gateways represent six completely different companies. So it's sort of like the life cycle of a butterfly. You know, it's like, you know, yeah. like caterpillar, chrysalis, or, and then butterfly. They're completely different. In many ways, they're completely different companies. I think that's very rare. I think a great venture capitalist, and there are some legendary ones, mythical ones, know how to play every single step and transition these companies. And I'm just proud to say that I think open space has got people who know how to do every stage and we put them on equal footing. So I'm proud to say that actually in December, we promoted Jessica Puller to be general partner of, sorry, not general partner, uh, just partner of, of open space. General partner means the company. So just partner of open space. And it complements myself and Shane. So Call me. I'm the I'm the maybe the caterpillar guy. I'm the guy. I know how to do the earlier stuff. 
And well, actually, Shane and Shane and Jessica are very good at the chrysalis and then the the butterfly stage. They're phenomenal at exiting companies, uh, doing M and A's, IPOing companies, thinking on the growth stage. And so, you know, for us now, we have uh, people who can understand billion dollar company concerns. We have a growth fund, so that's a very different thing. So that's much rarer. And the second thing that I think only comes with time and reputation is. I'm so proud of the fact that everybody in open space have got very meaningful and deep relationships where it counts, right? So my team in Thailand, Kunicha and Matt, they're so deep in the Thai ecosystem. I can call them and, you know, they can get me to pretty much anybody I need. And likewise, for an entrepreneur. And same with German and the Philippines. And I don't even want to talk my Indonesian team. They, they just know everybody there. And then for us in Singapore, we tend to know a lot of the late stage capital, you know, the soft banks, General Atlantic, Warby Ginkers, KKR, the list goes on. Apologies if I didn't name the right other um, growth capital guy. But that's the kind of expertise that is much more difficult to put a finger on, you know what I mean? And that's actually when people become really, really good at that craft. And that's the case with everything from tennis players to golf players. It's the subtlety of the business, I think. Um, a lot of times, it's very hard to express. Yeah, this comes up a lot. Uh, even in my previous conversations, you know, uh, helping when it really matters because it's really like a service business, so it's not really scalable. But uh, a founder always remembers uh, when when somebody helps uh, when it really matters. Yeah, the the actions of a venture capital firm are very difficult to scale, but the impact of what you do scales, so you get paid very handsomely. Uh, but yeah, this is a cottage yeah. business. Like, sorry, not, uh, this is an artisanal business, right? I always joke with my private equity friends, like you make honey on an industrial scale. I'm making, I make honey with one bee at a time. Uh, so that's absolutely true. That's the correct way of looking at it, Rahul. So I've heard this. You guys collect and catalog a lot of data about companies that you interact with and uh, you have a data-driven uh, approach yeah. to investing. So how does data help? Uh, so it's just picking companies or uh, it, it goes beyond that? Well, it's evolved, right? So the I firmly believe that the way to be successful in investing is if you've got asymmetrical information, right? So asymmetrical information is very powerful. If you know that a company's drug is about to get a- approved and you know the impact. You see, it's so powerful a force that in the public company environment, it's illegal, right? So this idea yeah. of insider trading, you know, before yeah. the laws were enacted or enforced, that was like the number one way which you could make money. You knew something about a company before everybody else did. You placed a bet. And in the, and in the yeah. public company environment, society has these, defined it as unfair. But the reality is that's the unfair advantage that we all should use in order to progress. And so that's what asymmetric information is all about. The only difference is that in a public company, you're subject to uh, regulations of fairness. So as a venture capitalist, by definition, you need to find an edge. As an entrepreneur, your definition is to find an edge. When I started Asian Food Channel, I was one of the early people to realize that the whole industry was going you know, to digital and there would be a big demand for channels. You know, Similarly, that's the most important thing. So having a data-driven approach simply to us means having the ability to find that asymmetric information advantage. And that's why 
the moniker for the firm is called active intelligence. You have the intelligence, but you have to be active about it. You have to act on the intelligence. Like if you kind of knew or you have a hunch that, you know, so-and-so is going to be big, but you don't take the risk to do it, then uh, later on in five years later, because I knew it, I told you I knew it, but then you didn't actually do anything about it. Uh, you know, what's the point of that? So active intelligence becomes very critical. And we started this journey very simply by having a very simple discipline, which is that if you met a company, log it down. If you have, you know, the information on the company or the company's presentation, store it somewhere. That's how we started seven years ago. And it's been a mantra of mine, like write it down, store it somewhere. Can't say we all do it as well as we should, myself included, because there are thousands of companies. I think phase two was like, store down the companies you think are mat matter because now there's so many companies. The first form of that is a CRM, right? So today, I think in open space, we have almost a decade's worth of information and interactions, which you can't get off the internet. They're asymmetrical things. I can probably pull out XYZ company. I can pull out Carousel probably. And <laughs> I have a database of all the times I've met them. I can pull out how are the and many different companies that, uh, that we've known because we've, we've done this for 10 years. What this data-driven approach that morphed into is when we got the big data team and open space as a dedicated operations team. So we actually have in our payroll, data scientists, product guys, CTO, HR, and various people functions full-time, right? We realized we could build our own. And uh, we started experimenting with this belief that we could combine both the private information we had with the public information that we could get that we'd had to pay for. I mean, we pay a lot of money for the external data and a signal would come out of it. And so far, it's been pretty strong. I wouldn't say it's automated, but what it means is that if a colleague, say in the Philippines, comes and you know meets a fintech company that's doing early wage access, pretty cool thing now, right? EWA. Yeah. He can go into the system that we call Alchemy. You can go to the Alchemy system open space, and you can find seven or eight companies which are very similar in their business plan and read the notes. They can immediately hopefully see a lot of the traction information, the user information, because we upload that. It means that people can really refine their hypothesis at a much faster rate. So that what would take, say, two days for an analyst, if I hired an analyst, uh, for us it takes two hours. And so that's what I mean by a data-driven approach. It's not an abdication of the decision. It's like you're given a much bigger and stronger uh, tool for you to try and make better decisions. Nice. So it really helps with uh, due diligence. It helps with the I due guess diligence. better. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll add one more point, which is that you also need to have the right culture, right? So what I mean by the right culture is that you cannot have a hyper-competitive culture within the firm where people don't want to share information. So say, for example, if everybody's competing for you know, glory within a firm, then yeah, I'm not going to show access, give you the information on the early wage access companies that I did due diligence on. So the culture of open space and why we call it open space is that it's flat, it's sharing, you know, our profit pools are consolidated uh, for every single fund. Uh, even if you're not directly working on that fund, you get a share of that fund up and down the organization. I think that's very, I mean, it's a philosophy that we have embraces venture capitalists. I don't think everybody does that in the industry. Yeah. 
this would be like a great tool because i spend some time with a vc firm and then the when when you when you're asked to do like a little bit of research or due diligence on a startup <laughs> i always think like if if it's just googling that anybody can do what is it that yeah. i can do on top of that so that all i always felt was a challenge but yeah if if you've been doing this then i, I guess you have access to information that no probably nobody has I mean, by definition, we have access to information and nobody has because we've been doing this for nine years very specifically right. in that one sector. And I'll tell you this, yeah. I don't have information in on Indian startups or Japanese startups or Chinese startups. So focus becomes very critical. And as a result, we were very clear about our fund mandate. We only invest in Southeast Asian companies. But yeah, that's... Uh, and then if we choose to expand into another geography, I mean, we won't have the, you know, X number of years of information. So we've got to go find that or we've got to go think about it. But you're absolutely right. And I think a lot of people who come in early into open space are shocked. If you're an intern in open space or if you just joined open space, you're shocked. You know, you know, Google was also, I think, back in the day, I don't know whether it's now, like that, where if you join Google, you, you got to see the source code of the entire thing from day one. It was shocking. I, I think right now as a firm, we still do that. It takes a lot of trust, right? And uh, I yeah. hope we keep that spirit as long as possible. Yeah. I read a story. It was in an interview about grain. And then uh, uh, one of the things that you mentioned was like, I said, uh, just be glad that I'm talking to you. The day I don't answer yeah. your call, I've written you off. So at what point do you write off a startup? Well, that's a very brutal thing to say. Can you imagine, right? Very brutal. Very brutal yeah. thing to say to a founder, right? Because I literally said that. I said, because it's a pretty tense moment. And grain had just realized that at that point of time, they could not make money at, in the B2C food delivery business, right? So for your viewers and listeners, uh, Grain was in the business of delivering food, but their own food. So not like Food Panda or, or Deliveroo. And when they started it, those food delivery companies had become dominant. Well, within six months after we invested, they were dominant and they were giving away huge discounts. So I don't care how good your food is. You know, it's hard to beat free food from somebody else. Yeah. So they were panicking. I think, you know, if, if Sung was here, the CEO, and he heard me say this in the public forum or podcast, he won't like it, but I think he won't disagree. And I'll tell you that Sung is like so much more amazing and entrepreneur because of that forging incident. But it took somebody to really focus their mind. And so what I said to them was I said, go away and think of a new plan because right now your b2c plan doesn't work and they came up actually with a phenomenal plan they pivoted to catering and prior to covid they were a very profitable company but to kind of add that sort of emotion to it i pretty much yelled at them and i said go away right go and think about this because they were in such a panic mode this is the first time they really saw that you know as a, as a seasoned entrepreneur you see this many times and I had, and someone told this to me, so I had to tell it to them. I said, "Go away, you know, don't talk to me anymore. Go think about it." And then I famously said, "You're too young, too smart," and I had to say, "Too good looking, too good looking <laughs> to fail, right?" And they were like, "What?" I'm like, "Yes, you're like the poster boy, you know." Coming back to the underdog story, life has given you all these resources, right, Rahul? You're well educated. Some of these guys are management consultants. You had access to venture capital. I refuse to accept that you're going to fail. Right? So some of them, I thought it was nuts. And then I think he kept on going at me and I just kept on going at him. And then finally, 
to stop the conversation, I said, by the way, just be glad I'm still arguing with you because the day I don't <laughs> means I've yes. given up. I have given yeah. up. And yeah. so that's what I meant when I said, the day I stop yelling at you means I've written you off. And people do this. This is the brutal thing about the business. Now, can you imagine you take money from venture capitalists and you're the 26th company and the guy literally thinks that you're not going to make it? He doesn't reply to your emails. He doesn't pick up your phone. So that's what I was trying to say to them, that be glad that I was still emotionally engaged next to you, trying to fight your way out of the situation, which was pretty dire at that point in time. Yeah. So I've seen VCs who spent probably more time with a, a failing startup than they should. Yeah. I've also seen uh, like VCs who just give up very quickly because they know it's like a numbers game and then you just need to focus on your winners. So where are you at? Like, yeah, what do you do? So you have to be very careful about that judgment because first and foremost, the what I've come to realize after doing this for a while is that actually... The the idea of venture capital is actually pretty broad. There are many ways of doing this business. None of them in itself are completely incorrect. It's just a different philosophy. If you're in the business of early stage seed investing and diversification is key, and you make you know, 40, 50, 60, in some cases, 100 investment institutionally, what you're trying to do is play many, many different hands of poker. I mean, you know, think about it when you play poker. You, when, you, when you have a bad hand, you don't look back. You just throw it away. That in itself isn't a bad thing. It's just that the way I play poker or the way I do venture capital is very different from you know those uh, highly diversified venture capitalists. So for us, it's very different. We make 17 to 18 investments each fund and each and every one of them are, are dear to us. And so if it goes wrong, because we also have like 32 people, we have the time to go and try and fix it. But you're absolutely right. There is a deep rabbit hole that you can go and spin cycles. So it's a it's hard, especially when you lose companies that you do you know investments like us, high touch, high conviction. It you know in this business the volatility of what we do is so great. The temptation is to give up early, but I've also seen situations where I personally thought that's the end, and these companies bounce back. And I sometimes learn from that, and I'm sometimes equally surprised at how resilient the business can be. So I think we err on the side that we just keep on trying until you run out of energy. But yeah, it's, you know, you don't have unlimited resources. So it's a very, very tough decision. Yeah. So what do you think are like some of the most important qualities that a VC must possess? We'll have to do another podcast for that one. My goodness. <laughs> I think, okay. Uh, I think fundamentally as a venture capitalist, you, one of the important things is you yourself have to be very open-minded about things because you're in the business of investing in disruptive things. So I remember early on in, in my career, you know, I met a venture capitalist who, he was just like so dismissive of every disruptive idea, right? Yeah. And I, I famously said to him, the name hell, I'm like, I'm like, hey, maybe you shouldn't be a venture capitalist. And he got really upset about it. I said, no, no, you shouldn't. He's like, why? I said, you're just not a person who thinks disruptively. In fact, it frightens you. And he said, you know, you're actually, you're right, because it does scare me. I don't know why. And then you actually end up not being a venture capitalist. You left the business. Because if, you're, if you don't enjoy crazy ideas or you're terrified by it, then don't do it. And, you know, he, he worked for a corporate VC. And so <laughs> to him, it was a job he didn't realize what he was getting into. So I think you really have to be as crazy as the people you're backing. That's number one. And the second most important quality of a venture capitalist 
it's maturity, I think. You know, uh, people always say, oh, it's got consistency and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like consistency is not a strategy. Consistency of your fund performance, consistency of what you do comes as a result of hard work and maturity. And what I mean by maturity is that, you know, you've seen a lot of situations in that sphere of influence. It does not mean a whole age. They're very young people who are very mature in their space. I'll give you an example. I would argue that somebody who's been doing crypto and Web3 for 10 years, and he's now 28 years old because he started 18, is way more mature in their thinking and perspective than me because I haven't done it. Yeah. So I think from that perspective, those are the two most important qualities. You can be crazy enough and you've got to have that kind of domain expertise as well and the maturity. Yeah. So uh, you've been in VC for like uh, eight years now? Yeah. Uh, so how do you rate yourself? <laughs> Ooh. Well, objectively, from a data-driven perspective, I think the firm's holding a very strong track record for now. Our IRR blended throughout the entire funds are you know, north of 40%. That's all I say. Gross before fees. To put that in perspective, that's pretty tough to do on the global perspective. Yeah. Yeah. To hold that for like seven or eight years. Don't get me wrong, you know, fund one when after we go check pop, we have some stupid IRR, like some, you know, like two hundred fifty percent. No, no. If you're an experienced uh, institutional investor looking at your capital, you say that, yeah, did you manage to do twenty five to thirty percent IRR over a decade? Yeah. So I think if you rate it from that perspective, we're pretty awesome, Rahul. <laughs> but again, <laughs> the question, and so you know, the self deception can easily end up being. Is it because you're at the right place at the right time or did you do something different? And the truth is, I think Southeast Asia, if you've been a Southeast Asian venture capitalist over the past 10 years, it's been a great 10 years. And us yeah. and other peer group, we all have pretty strong IRRs. Sometimes in life, it's, you know, if you were a Chinese VC from 06 until like 13, you'd, you'd just be legendary. So I think we're doing well. It's us for us to lose that track record. I think we're not at the scale or we're certainly not at the maturity of other global firms who maybe have done this for 20, 30, 40 years. But on the other hand, the other firms also have, you know, succession issues or maybe they, you know, have, are too wedded to an idea they've had to pivot. So from a data-driven perspective, I think our track record is good. Our firm and our leadership is stronger than ever. I, I'm very excited about that. We do a very interesting thing, which is, we do a 360 feedback loop for all our team members, right? So everybody in the firm at the end of the year rates everybody else on many metrics, like how, how they do well, and they all give feedback, anonymous feedback. And then our portfolio companies, if they choose to, also give us feedback and rate us as well. Very interesting, the numbers. So from that perspective, I'm not as good as a few of my other colleagues. When that number comes out, some people score higher. And that's because I'm kind of edgy character. So sometimes people go like, yeah. attention to detail, Hian, focus, this, that. But I think to rate myself as a venture capitalist, I think we're doing pretty well simply because I've got a team of people who are better than me, sharper than me, have the domain expertise as us. So yeah, we, we you know, I'm, 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 I'm not disappointed at, at what we've done. Um, what I am also is gently paranoid about either being disintermediated or not being relevant. Deals are getting faster. People are getting more aggressive. 
investors commit earlier, we tend to only commit a series A. Should we change how we invest? Should we get into, you know, very emerging sectors which are still evolving like Web3 crypto and that kind of stuff? Yeah. You know? So in order to do that as a venture capitalist and keep it yourself on your toes, you have to be, you know, as I say, active intelligence. It is clear where Web3 is going. But then, you know, we saw so many Web3 projects that we didn't want to put in the main fund because we promised our investors a certain kind of risk profile. Uh, last year, we spooled up a crypto fund, a very small crypto fund called Ocula, to experiment and to grow in the space. So I yeah. think, you know, I would rate ourselves as sufficiently paranoid to make sure that we don't become a dinosaur, hopefully. Yes. So I think this conversation has been magic, <laughs> like you mentioned. <laughs> it, has, it has a lot to do with you as a guest. Yeah, thank you so much for your take, taking the time to do this. You're very welcome, Rahul. And, uh, you know, thank you very much for you putting your time and effort and, you know, finding all these people and uh, let us know how we can help you and uh, see you around in the ecosystem. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yeah. If you like this podcast, please follow Understanding VC wherever you're listening to this and also share it with folks who might be interested. Thank you.